Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 195 for May 7th, 2009, SSL. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMyPC, remote access software that's built for folks who aren't technical, not like this show. And it comes with free customer service 24-7. For your free 30-day trial, tell your family and friends, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things security and privacy related with our host, Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com, creator of Spinrite, discoverer of spyware, and man about town. Soon to <laughs> well, be man about man town with... About- Man about Starbucks. Man about so, Starbucks. Yeah, that's I a good. I don't really get out on the town. I'm pretty much at Starbucks. In fact, today I only was only there for five hours this morning. As I was walking out at ten, the uh, the the Jackie who opened the store at five and I helped unlock the front door because I'm always there at opening. She said, "You're leaving early." <laughs> so wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You go there at five a.m. Yeah, every morning I'm there at opening, at and that's 5 breakfast for you. Well, it's it gets me up and going. And my new deal now, I'm so excited about, is I've got my Northgate OmniKey 102 keyboard that I have under my other arm, and I've been spending <laughs> 10 to 11 hours a day there. What? Oh, much. so you're programming there instead of at home. Yeah. yeah. Why In is fact, that? You like the people around and the, the bustle? Well, I spent 10 years sort of, you know, all by myself at home, and that was good, but there's actually more distractions here than there are at Starbucks. Even though, yeah. even with even in counting the UCI cuties who come across the street and you know hang out at, at Starbucks, that's, I mean, it's just good it's, for the good for the soul. Oh yes, it's a it's uh, you know it's it's it gives me a little bit of when you of get break. when you get to to our age, folks. It's not as much of a distraction as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, uh, and okay. back to programming. <laughs> now, are you going to bring? Our- are you going to bring? I know you've ordered the new. Kindle DX, the big one. Are you going to bring that around? Is that going to be your new like newspaper that you carry under your arm with your Northgate keyboard? Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I've actually put my Kindle down. I haven't looked at it much for the last few weeks. I've, I mean, I've really been having a ball getting a ton of of coding done. Oh, that's so and neat. there's a very good chance that that all of CryptoLink will be written at Starbucks, which would be kind of fun. That's really cool. Well, you wouldn't be the first program to be written in a coffee shop. Nope. It's very common. In fact, you know, as we, we're kind of been looking at larger spaces uh, for maybe not, you know, for another year or so, but well, at some retail point. retail space you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. And I, one of the things I would like to do is kind of have a co-working space there so that people in the neighborhood who are smart techies would have a place they could come. They could use the Wi-Fi. We'd probably have a little coffee bar there hmm. uh, because people do. I think you're right. I think even though you're working on your solitary thing, you don't want to be completely alone. It's nice to have a, a little people wandering around and making noise around yep. you and there there you know i got there's a bunch of starbucks regulars there there's another guy robert who's also always there at five he's studying french oh, having mastered spanish that's um neat. and he he's he's a, he 
goes out and paddles after a couple hours and and so he's there and so we you know we I and there's a bunch of regulars and it's sort of a little bit of social dip uh but I'm I just can't believe how much I'm getting done I'm just getting so much work done and I'm a little giddy afterwards I think my god this is what I'm supposed to be doing it's not like I'm playing hooky. It's Isn't like, that nice? That's a nice yeah. feeling. And not only that, you're, you're doing it and nobody's making you do it. You're not on deadline. You get to really enjoy the creative process, yeah, knowing well, that you're going to make something that people will use. Yep. Wait till you see it. I think, I think in two weeks, I'll be uh, hopefully unveiling this thing that I've been working on, this DNS that soon. DNS benchmark. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, let's get down to a business, to brass tacks, as yes, they are wanting to Yes, this is episode 195. Wow. What are we t- talking about today? Well, I've been talking about what we're going to be talking about, <laughs> or what we're going to be talking about as the SSL protocol, which is really a misnomer because it really is TLS. I it's, see that setting in my email program sometimes. It'll say SSL via TLS or TLS slash SSL or something right. like that. Uh, it's really, uh, TLS is is transport layer security, which is the renaming of the the SSL, the secure sockets layer, which was the, the name orig- originally given to, to it by Netscape back in 94 when they originated this. So um, with everything that we've learned, all of the background that we have in the previous 194 episodes, um, I'm going to dis- describe today in sufficient detail that everyone listening who has been following along will really have a good sense for what the mo- the number one most popular, most used protocol, sec- most security, uh, most used security protocol on the internet is, how it works in, in lots of fun detail. Cool. So that's today's topic. I'm excited about it. But before we get to today's topic, I'm sure there are uh, some errata, some tech news and so forth. And before you get to that, I'd like to mention, go to my PC if you don't mind. Uh, These are the folks uh, at Citrix who do the great product. Go to my PC. It's remote access. And uh, it's it's, uh, really the greatest way to do remote access. Now, I know the people who are listening to this show are pretty sophisticated, so I'm I'm going to assume that you've used remote access. You probably can handle remote access. Some of you use Hamachi and other more sophisticated solutions. But you know, and I think you know this, it's not right for everyone. And sometimes, we were just talking about uh, configuring uh, asterisks, sometimes some of these great solutions cause some hair loss as you might say (laughs) i just want to tell you if you need to set up remote access or you want to set it up for somebody in your family or you want somebody in your family to use it you want to tell them about go to my pc g-o-t-o-m-y-p-c.com first of all it's it's uncompromising you don't have to worry about it being and there there are a number of remote access solutions like this where you just don't get all the features you want or the speed you want or, and this is important, the security you want, go to my PC compromises on none of those. In fact, it uses SSL. It uses TLS for its security. One of the reasons it's the most secure solution out there. And it works anywhere because it uses something called NAT traversal. That means you and your family and your friends don't have to configure the router. Don't have to worry about, uh, you know, DMZing a machine. That's not safe. Don't have to worry about port forwarding. It uses the centralized GoToMyPC server to eliminate all of that. So a couple of clicks of the mouse, you can set it up. 
I think it, I may be wrong on this. I should I should verify, but I think it's Java based. It looks like a Java based install. Uh, very quick. Now it's on your system at your office or whichever system you want to access. Wherever you are, you can do this on a Mac or a PC or Linux or any system as long as you can get uh, a connection to the internet. You can log in to go to mypc.com with your secure username and password. You are connected via SSL, not just to go to my PC, but also to your home system, the system you're accessing. And now everything you've done is it do is secure. You can do anything you want, including run any program, access any network resource. You're seeing the desktop. Uh, unlike a lot of programs, you see video, you see audio. Um, so it really is a great solution. You can check your email. You can drag and drop files if you should choose from one system to the remote system. It's built for non-techies, so anyone can use it. Customer service is free 24-7, and right now it's free for you for the next 30 days. I want you to go to gotomypc.com slash security now. And frankly, I bet anybody listening has already got a solution, maybe this solution working, but this is the one you want to tell your friends about, and you can tell them it's free for 30 days. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Be a great solution for uh, for uh, uh, supporting family members and friends. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Any, oh, goodness, there's two of me. Any errata, any errata to uh, to address before we get to the news of the day? Well, having discussed the Kindle, uh, I had that on my notes to discuss. That's pretty, uh, that, only- we didn't discuss it. Now, uh, we should say, we discussed it before we started the show. Oh. So let's go through just a little bit about why you think this is an important thing. First of all, why did Amazon, hard on the heels of announcing Kindle 2, do another Kindle? I mean, I, I just bought a Kindle 2. I just bought one for my mom a day before the announcement. Uh, should I send it back? Should I say, don't open it, mom, send it back? Um, well, okay, I don't have the DX yet, so okay. I don't know. So you're not reviewing um, it. And I Yeah, right. And I only learned about it minutes before we began recording um a friend of mine said so do you have your dx yet i said my my d who and you know so uh so what i know about it is that it has a 9.7 inch diagonal screen instead of the six point something that both the first and second generation kindles have that it has a higher um pixel resolution so a a um the individual pixel pitch is tighter um, and significantly, whereas both of the first two Kindles did not have native PDF reading, this one does, which is a big feature for me. Um, this is you know, this is their their uh, I understand this is their way of getting into the textbook market. Basically, you need well, to have this size. Yes, presumably. I mean, I for, you know, what, what I was doing this morning during my five hours at Starbucks was rereading uh this the rfc it's uh rfc uh 5246 which it's the largest rfc i think i've ever seen it's 104 pages long and this is the detailed specification for version 1.2 of tls the transport layer security which is the topic of this week's um podcast and um i printed it out i printed out you know, double-sided to save paper, but, you know, so there's, there's 52 sheets of paper. Um, I would have much rather written it to a PDF, stuck it on something that I could read. Now, yeah, I could do it on a laptop, but, you know, the, the, this, this DX, the fact that it is able 
now to render PDFs. And the screen is large enough that you can actually see the content of the PDF that's rendered. You know, now I'll have a portable PDF reader. And so my, when I other- email a, ki- a PDF to my Kindle, as I have just as I've done recently, it's converting it. Correct. It converts it to its native format, to okay. the Moby book, the, Mo- the Moby pocket format. And why is we, that not OK? Um, well, look at the PDF um, and you'll find that it just it didn't make it. It's it's there. There aren't enough pixels to render a, a typical full page that a that, that the PDF assumes and PDFs are non-reflowable, whereas whereas uh, books can be dynamically reflowed. Because really, a book, you know, a textual book is just a a stream of of characters. And so, when you change the font size, for example, you're able to um, you're able to reflow so that you repaginate. But for example, you can't change the font size on a PDF because you know you you can scale the whole page, but you can't change the font size because the PDF is it's, it's, it's a page layout specification. So anyway, I'm excited, and I know a number of my other techie friends. For example, Mark Thompson. When you know the the one question he had about you know of, of Analog X, the one question he had about the Kindle was you know will it display PDFs? And I said no. You know this one does. The DX does and because it's, its page size is big enough to not to show an eight and a half by eleven or an A4 page without. Uh, reflowing it with, well with enough resolution so, so you, you can, can just actually, put the basically yeah because a, a pdf is a picture of a page basically right so you exactly post, you and can put the so picture of the page certainly on certainly put that on your kindle and i did i kindle one and which has the same resolution as as, as the kindle 2 i did put a pdf on it and i thought okay well i'm not doing this again <laughs> okay well that's so, kind of intriguing but i'm a little worried i'm gonna wait till you get yours because i'm a little worried that it's just too big because i mostly read my kindle in bed or uh, yep. on an airplane and stuff like that and i I'm a little concerned that it might be a little big. Yeah, I'm um, I'm reading textbooks that often have diagrams, and the diagrams don't survive very well on Kindle yeah. 1 or 2. Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, you, yeah. you have to get out a magnifying glass or squint and so forth. Right. And so that that's another example where this DX, it will be much better for books containing diagrams. Well, I'm glad you're the guinea pig. Uh, for the first time ever, Leo. Normally, you're, you're, Normally you're I'm the early adopter. If yeah. I hadn't just bought that Kindle, I'm, I'm a little miffed, frankly, but I guess I could have mom send hers back because um, she does want the big type. I just don't know. She tried my Kindle, too, and loved it. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, for for a mo- for your mom, you know, some, she's probably, what, in her 80s like mine? Right. No, late, uh, 70s. late, uh, late 70s, yeah. Yeah. At that point... You you know having a Mid, bigger mid-70. page with bigger font I think there's some advantages. Yeah, there. well she she had stopped reading books and uh, uh, she couldn't read p- even papers for very long. And when she right. tried the Kindle, she read a whole book while she was visiting last week because uh, she could make the font size a little bit bigger. But it's big yeah. enough on the Kindle too, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to watch you. Thank you for being the guinea pig for us. Yeah, happy anyway. to be. And, you know, it, it's pre-order time. It's not like they're shipping them yet. They're saying right. they'll, be, they'll be shipping sometime this summer. That could be I immediately anytime. logged myself in to get in get in the queue. So um, I'm, I'm excited. You know what? This really it. is exciting is, is for school books, uh, textbooks. They're very, very expensive. Uh, kids carry, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds worth of books in their backpack. This is a much better solution. 
if yeah. Amazon can get those book prices down. Well, and you know, Leo, I mean, I I just I recently purchased a an, a tablet PC in order as as part of my new Starbucks kit because I'm using an external keyboard. You know, the old right. Northgate Omni Key 102. So I got the I bought the tablet from Motion Computing. They're a you know well known reputable tablet maker. They sort of like do the higher end industrial tablets. Um, for like vertical markets for hospitals and construction workers and things. Um, really well built. I really like it. It's a 12.1 inch screen, 1400 by 10 something resolution. So lots of resolution. Of course, it's color. Um, it runs Windows. I mean, it's a perfectly adequate uh, PDF viewer. You could run it in portrait mode instead of landscape. Right. And, you know, and I mean, so it's not like solutions don't already exist, which which would be totally adequate, except that it, you know, that doesn't run for two weeks without a charge. Right. The other uh, thing that's going to be interesting is we haven't heard Apple from Apple yet. Yeah. And next month, Apple's going to come out with something, I suspect. And many rumors are that it might be a, a reader or at least have reading functionality. So we'll see. We'll see. It's all very interesting. What else is in the news? Well, we have um, a significant... Adobe zero day flaw. Oh, a second, another one like the one in February. Another one. And in fact, it, it, this is bad enough that it's now time for all of our listeners to do the following. Um, click on any PDF that you've got on your system that will open the reader. And this affects both reader and the full Acrobat product. Go to the edit menu, which is the second one over. File is the first. Edit is the second. Choose preferences. There's a now you get up a big dialogue with a bazillion categories down the left hand side. Fortunately, they're alphabetical, so you can go to J for not surprisingly <clears throat> JavaScript. <laughs> I know where you're going on My this one. Number one, Nemesis <laughs> JavaScript. Select that, and the first checkbox is Enable JavaScript. Unfortunately, it's on by default, thus the problem. Just turn it off. You know, it's sad. There is no reason for you to have JavaScript in a PDF. Exactly. PDFs do not need JavaScript. Yeah. And so here again, we've got, we've found in the wild was a a remote code execution exploit. Another one. I mean, Adobe's been having a bunch of problems, not only in that, but in Flash. I mean, you know, they're, so all current versions of Reader and Acrobat, which is, I'm still on version 8, as we've discussed. So mine, the one I've got, 8.1.4, is vulnerable, 9.1 and 7.1.1. So both 7, 8, and 9 releases of on both platforms, Reader and Acrobat, are vulnerable to this. It was, it was a zero-day exploit, meaning that they discovered it because it was being used to run code on people's computers when they viewed PDFs. Um, fortunately, I had already taken my advice. And I had JavaScript disabled in my reader. Everyone listening to this should just turn off JavaScript. You lose nothing because who even knows? I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a PDF that had JavaScript in it. I know it's for reading documents. Um, so turn it off and then you don't have anything to worry about. And we'll let you know. Apparently next week from this podcast. So I know here we are. This is uh, May 7th is the date of this podcast. So you know, a week from now, they should be pushing out a fix for this. They're working on it feverishly. Um, fortunately, our listeners who are smart enough to just disable JavaScript 
can protect themselves right now. Many of so, our listeners use Foxit and don't use Adobe Reader or Acrobat. And boy, Reader is 200 and some megs yeah. in size. It's just, I, I that's installed that, it on. That's the JavaScript engine. Why? I installed it on, on this new little tablet of mine, and I downloaded yeah. the, the latest one, 8.1.4, and it was, I think it was 214 is the number I'm remembering. It's like, yo, just to read PDFs, I've got 214. Well, that was the download size. Who knows how large it, it blew itself up to when it landed on my hard drive. So anyway. <sighs> it's, a, it's just, a, it's remarkable. Um, and I, and I, I, I don't use, I, I stopped using Reader after the last problem, but uh, just boy, you know. And so have you been using Foxit? Since? Yeah, Foxit's great. I've used well, Foxit maybe, for a long time. I think maybe I'll just switch. I mean, Not that they're know. immune from uh, exploits either, but this is two in a row. And I, well, and I'd rather have something smaller. I just yeah. don't want two hundred plus megs of bloat in order to read a PDF. That's that's nuts. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. with you on that. So the only other thing I had was a really short little note from a Happy Spinrite user, Doug Davis, who actually wrote to us uh, on Halloween, um, and I had his in my list of of testimonials to get to. He just said, um, I'm a very happy owner of Spinrite. I have a laptop that would just shut down whenever the virus scanner tried to scan the disk. Other scanners and disk checks cause the same result. At first, I thought a virus was compromising my machine, thus shutting it down so that it couldn't get scanned. But finally, I bought Spinrite on a hunch. I ran it and it magically fixed the disk and my virus scanner now works again. Another happy ending. Thanks for this great product. Regards, Doug Davis. Excellent. So Excellent. you never, I mean, I wouldn't have even recommended Spinrite in that case, but that's what the problem was. And so he was able to fix his system. Well, I'm hearing from uh, our chat room that uh, that Foxit also has JavaScript enabled by default. Ah, uh, well. Not the same. For, there isn't the same bug, of course. That's a bug in the Adobe implementation. But it's just, right. there must be something that's going on in PDFs that there there's a need for JavaScript. I can't. No, not necessarily. It could just be bullet point-itis. That's what uh, bloated zone alarm up to the point that it was no longer useful or recommendable. They've got JavaScript, that, so we have to have JavaScript. Well, in, in the case of zone alarm, of course, they were competing with Symantec and McAfee that were just that were turning their own fire, personal firewalls into kitchen sinks. And, and I, I mean, I was complaining to Gregor. I said, Gregor, don't screw up Zone Alarm by putting all this other nonsense in it. And he says, he says I, I hear you, but I have to. You know, we have to compete. And so it may be that Foxit, you know, had, you know, went out and got some JavaScript engine from somewhere and stuck it in just so they had it too, even though it'd be nice if they didn't. And I, it would be smaller if they didn't. It's crazy. Oh, well, these are the things we have to live with. Hey, before we get to uh, your discussion of uh, SSL, I'm, yep. very, I'm really excited about this. So you're, we're going to talk about how it works and all that stuff. Every detail. Every detail. Before More we get... than you probably really <laughs> want to know. But that's why you tune in. That's why you watch this and listen to this. It's all about the incredible depth that Steve uh, goes to on this stuff. Before we do that, though, I do want to mention uh, the great folks at Audible.com. Did I tell you last week that the, they've asked me to, to read a book, and I'm trying to find a good sci-fi so, novel to read? That is so perfect. It'd be so much fun. I, I wanted to read the uh, short stories of Philip K. Dick, but I think all of them are already uh, on Audible.com, alas. Do authors, are, are authors charged to have their books audibilized? I have no idea. Because oh, I'm, 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 just, I'm just wondering about our friend at Sci-Fi AZ. Oh, I'd love to do his. No, yeah. I can't imagine that. In fact, it's it's 
probably more of a pure publishing deal where you get a royalty out of it. It might be that he just wants to publish his own. I mean, he, yeah. he is a self-publisher. So I'll ask Audible because I'd love to read his stuff. He's, he's quite good. Uh, I was just looking at the Audible uh, sci-fi collection and they have such a great selection. They call it the... Well, they they have their own what they call uh, Audible Frontiers, which is stuff that they record. And of course, because sci-fi uh, novels, especially the older stuff, uh, you know, they were often pulp fiction that publishers never thought of doing audiobooks. So Audible's really made it their uh, mission to record some of these classics and bring them back. I mentioned to Earth Abides uh, the other day. I got an email from somebody who said, you've completely ruined my worldview now after reading Earth Abides. I have to, my whole life has changed. I thought that's, that's good science fiction. If your yeah. if your life has changed. So now they have 220 classic science fiction books, almost all of them recorded by uh, audible uh, and put in the audible uh, collection and just wonderful, wonderful stuff like that. Earth Abides. If you're building up your expertise in science fiction, Go to audible.com slash security. Now sign up for that gold account. You get a book a month. There's something about listening to science fiction that's so great. They they do, you know, but some of them are straight reads. And then some of them, like their um, unabridged, I want to say performance of Dune, are almost dramatizations. They use uh, multiple readers uh, for different voices. Dune is so complex that you kind of need that. You kind of need... Uh, the additional voices that to help it make more sense, but it just comes to life. This is, if you haven't read Dune, this is a great way to read or listen to, I guess, Dune. Every word is there, but narrated by some of the best narrators, including Scott Brick and Simon Vance and Orla Cassidy and uh, Ewan Morton to give it that real authenticity. This is a, this is a audible customer favorite four and a half stars out of five based on over 2000 ratings. You know, this is a really, really good audio book a good one to start with so give it a try go to audible.com slash security now sign up for the gold account your first book's absolutely free it could be dune or it could be any of the fifty thousand titles they've got it plays on the kindle i presume it'll play on the kindle dx as well all the iphones all the ipods the zunes the iRivers, hundreds of different devices go to the device center to make sure it works on your device and then within seconds you'll be listening to great literature or trashy novels Whichever you prefer. Audible.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support. And it's not it's not audiblepodcast.com anymore? Um, you know, that's a good question. Let me check. Yeah, for a while you were audiblepodcast.com, weren't you? Yeah. I hope I haven't I mean both work, but uh, we want to make sure you get the get the credit. Yeah, thank you for correcting me. It is audiblepodcast.com. So I apologize. Uh listeners. Don't go to audible.com slash security now. Go to audible. Thank you for correcting. I think I've been saying that wrong for some time now. Audible podcast. It doesn't, it, it only impacts, they like to keep track of which shows do the best for them. And so I know you like to do well, Steve. So I'm very competitive. Yes. <laughs> audible. There's the, there's the URL. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. All right. Let's talk about SSL, Steve Gibson. Well, um, we really need to talk about TLS. Oh. So, um, you know, SSL is, is because it was what came first. It was, it's what, you know, we still refer to this protocol as commonly, although it's really not the case actually that SSL is in use. Um, TLS has 
formally and completely replaced it. It is substantially more bulletproof. Um, SSL has a has an interesting, somewhat spotty history, more so than is commonly known. I mean, we you know we've beaten up, you know, the early Wi-Fi protocol, you know, web security pretty badly. Um, we've never really done the same for SSL. SSL was original was is a specification for securing um, any reliable protocol on the internet, meaning. For example, TCP, as we discussed, is a reliable protocol because even though the connection itself is not reliable, meaning that routers that are briefly overloaded um, have, by permission, have the ability to drop whatever packets they're unable to route. No, they only make a best effort. The routers make no guarantee. So an unreliable protocol, that is to say a, a, a non-reliability guaranteed protocol, for example, like UDP, which just sort of sends packets out, you, you cannot run, for example, SSL or, or TLS over UDP. Turns out there is lately a, a variant that is a, that is a packet-based, a so-called datagram-based SSL, which is designed to run over a non-reliable protocol. But, but SSL, or TLS, as it's been renamed, does assume that anything that it sends will get to the other end. So that, that, that is to say that the underlying protocol, which, in the case, which is normally TCP, if packets are lost in transit, TCP will take responsibility for retransmitting them, and they, at the receiving end, the, the TCP protocol will assemble them in the right order and, and end up presenting to the next level up, which is TLS or SSL. Um, it'll, it'll end up presenting a, a sort of a reconstructed, error-corrected stream. And in fact, it's worth talking a little bit about this notion of layering because um, that's inherent in what the way SSL TLS works. In fact, instead of using both acronyms from now on, I'm going to try to say TLS since that's, that, that is the protocol that we're all using. Uh, all contemporary web servers support the latest version, which is TLS 1.2. Um, Firefox 2 and 3, um, IE 7, um, you know, all the stir uh, and the latest versions of Opera, all the current browsers support TLS, as do servers. There is a, a nice technology that we'll be talking about for, for sort of dropping back. So the idea is that, that you will, the, the browser and the server will always negotiate the latest version and the, and the, the best strength of, of available ciphers and hashing and signature and public key technology that each of them know about. So, so that there's a, it's been really well designed so that the resulting connection is the, is the lower of the highest versions that both support. So it ends up doing the right thing, but you know, we have this notion of, of a, a, if the the physical connection, the actual the, the the protocol on the wire is is for example often Ethernet, 
where we know that addressing is by MAC addresses. And then running on top of that protocol is the IP layer, which provides where addressing is by IP addressing. But the I, but, but you know, so so IP protocol runs on top of the Ethernet protocol, and then it is the host for a cup for the IP protocol suite. For example, ICMP, which is like the ping and, and trace route, uses that is a protocol running on IP. UDP and TCP that we've talked about are two other protocols running on IP. So in so. In this case, we've got Ethernet at the bottom, on sort of on the physical wire, then the IP protocol to allow IP addressing, then that that hosts TCP, which provides um, both this abstraction of an IP address and then this notion of port numbers, so that you have this you know a 16-bit port number. So that's where port portage sort of comes from. Then normally you would then run your application layer. That is your application protocol, which would be, in the case of a web browser and server, it'd be HTTP, or it could be FTP or Telnet or whatever. That is, uh, those are protocols that, application-level protocols that run on top of TCP. They all assume a reliable TCP connection so that they're not worrying about lost packets and so forth. They rely on the underlying protocol, TCP, to do that for them. Well, what TLS does is it inserts itself in a, in a transparent way between the TCP layer and the application layer. So that essentially it's, it's another wrapper or sort of another little shim in this, in this layered um, stack of protocols. And so it relies, as I was saying before, on the underlying layer, TCP, to provide it reliability. So it needs and assumes that it's running on a reliable protocol, TCP. And what it does by inserting itself between TCP and the application layer is it provides a number of services to the application layer, to HTTP, turning it into HTTPS or FTP, if you had, for example, secure FTP or secure Telnet. Um, that is, any application is able to run on TLS and get all the benefits that of, of, of security that TLS provides to, to any client application. Now, this was originated by Netscape, and they pretty much did a good job. They started off in um, 1994, which is 15 years ago, our time um, at this point. And it's interesting, they, you know, they're not security people, but they were smart people and, and tried to do a good job. They came out with SSL version 1.0 that was unfortunately so broken that it never saw the light of day. Um, they produced a formal specification and fortunately got some feedback from the internet community before just going public with it. And that really got the crypto guys involved who looked at what they'd done and said, uh, oops, you know, 
you can't use this. The crypto guys immediately saw a bunch of problems with the things that Netscape had what was proposing. And so one point uh, SSL 1.0 never happened. Um, sometime later, in fact, I think it was February of 95, Netscape took you know, took advantage of all the feedback they'd received on the never released 1.0 and did produce version 2.0. So SSL version 2.0 is the first is the first version of SSL secure sockets layer that anyone ever saw. Um, so what does it provide? Well, we sort of know from all the discussion that we've had over the last nearly four years what we rely on SSL for. We know that we rely on it for confidentiality. That is to say, encryption. It has ciphers in it such that no one monitoring the line is able to, to obtain any information, um, for, you know, um, is able to, to know what it is that we're sending back and forth. One of the, one of the nice features of, of, both this original SSL and today's TLS is that the all of the connection and handshaking is done before even the first byte of the application layer data is transferred. So, so TCP, the the layer below this security layer, TCP. Does it SYN, SYNAC, and SYN, the standard three-way handshake, in, typically involving three packets, which establishes sequencing and, and confirmation of a connection. At that point, SSL performs its handshake and negotiation, which is what we're going to talk about in detail here in a couple of minutes. And, and all of that gets done, and both endpoints of this security protocol are they they need to be satisfied and happy um and and established essentially prior to the application layer but that's been waiting all this time the application layer initiated this but no actual traffic is emitted at either end until this this secure layer has been established so Nothing of what the application is doing is able to leak out um, into, you know, um, in any way out of the out, out of the LAN or the WAN, the Internet, anywhere. So it really does wrap the entire dialogue in in a confidential tunnel. It also it also, as we know, both SSL and now TLS um, provide provide authentication. We've talked a lot about server-side certificates, and, and we understand that a certificate is identification information and a public key, which has been, has been formally signed by somebody that, that the recipient of the certificate trusts, and that allows them to verify that nothing has been tampered with, and that is, is a way for them to obtain the, for example, in the case of a typical web browser and server, it's a way of, for them to obtain the, the public key that matches the, the secret and private key of the server. 
um, which is used by this protocol in a way that, that we'll see here in a minute. So, so that provides authentication um, and some, some crypt cryptographic credentials. Um, it also provides tamper-proofing, which is important because it's, you know, it's one thing to, to know that the message is secret and that it's authenticated, but if it, if it was possible to tamper with the message, then we're not so happy because there are various hacks that can be used if you could tamper with the stream that could still cause trouble, even though the message is confidential and authenticated. And in fact, that's where SSL 2.0, it's one of the places where it tended to fall down um, and also provides proof against message forgery um, so that so that nobody is able to, for example, do a replay by sending packets again and forging packets from from either of the endpoints. So all of the packets are are serialized um, through the entire connection and both endpoints make sure that they've that they never get a duplicate serial number. No serial numbers are missing because, again, another you could imagine some sort of a clever attack where somebody would who, again, who can't see into the packet, who can't who can't pretend to be someone generating the packets might take some out and in, in that way, again, compromise the communication. So so SSL and TLS provide um, proof against that as well. So. Um, 2.0 had some problems. Um, it, it was good and we used it for a long time and, and there weren't, there weren't any highly publicized breaches in SSL 2.0 because it was well-designed. But for example, it uses the MD5 hash. Oops. Well, that wasn't a problem back then. We only we know, know it's a problem now. Yes, yeah. exactly. We, yeah. we know that there are all kinds of problems with MD5. Um, so so we had to move past using an MD5 hash. Um, SSL version three sort of fixed it a little bit by by coming up with with a clever solution. They they hashed both. They, 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 they produce both an MD5 hash and an SHA1 hash, and they XORed the result. So that means that the result sort of hybrid hash depended upon both, which, which was an interesting solution because it meant that either one could be compromised, but you were but since the result was an XOR with the other presumably uncompromised hash, you'd still get the full strength of the, the, the surviving uncompromised hash. That's pretty clever, actually. It, it is really clever. Yeah. Um, however, the sense was, eh, you know, that's kind of a kludge. And, and TLS, which is where we are now, is, is it started off as SSL 3.0. So it was sort of just a renaming of 3.0 into TLS. And it was... When it went to TLS is when the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, took it on as, as a formal standard. They said, okay, you know, this is important. We're going to take this under our wing. We're going to rename it in the process. But 3.0 looks pretty – SSL 3.0 looks pretty good. 
So that's what 1.0, that, that's what TLS 1.0 is going to be. Well, we're now at 1.2 because a number of improvements and refinements have been made. And for example, um, the use of SHA-1 and MD-5 is gone completely. We're now using just SHA-256, which is you know state-of-the-art, much stronger than either the MD-5 or the SHA-1 hashes. And, you know, those, again, can be supported in the, in the case of downgrading your connection to an earlier protocol. But given that both endpoints support TLS, that won't happen. Um, SSL 2.0 also had a problem in that it used identical cryptographic keys for both method, message authentication and encryption. And while it's not a horrible thing to do, it's just not good. Um, the crypto guys worry that using the same keys for two different purposes is fundamentally less secure than using separate keys for separate purposes. So one of the things that the that 3.0 did, SSL 3.0, is that it said, okay, you know, we can make keying material at will, so let's make more keying material and use separate keys for authentication and for encryption. So that's one of the other things that where we moved forward from version 2.0 to 3.0. There was also an interesting attack that was, that was discovered, and again, it's sort of a theoretical problem where you could a man in the middle could intercept and mess with the handshaking phase of SSL 2.0, where the where the two endpoints are negotiating the cipher that they're going to use and the authentication. Basically, um, and I'll go into this in more detail in a minute. But essentially, the client sends a list of all the ciphers and hashes and public key and key exchange technology that it knows about. And so it sends this list off to the server and says, here's, here's how smart I am. And basically it's, so, so, so the, the server knows this, all the different suites of protocols that are being offered to it essentially to use by the client. Um, the server then looks at its own list and in every case chooses, then this is a hierarchy, chooses the best of each of these categories that it also knows about. So that's how the client and server are able to arrive at like the best way they each know of speaking to each other, yet in a way that allows a less capable endpoint to still establish a connection. It's not as as good, as strong a connection necessarily, if you wanted to get, you know, really picky at, at crypto. I mean, even like the least secure is like way secure, but it's not, you know, state of the art. So that allows endpoints with different knowledge of crypto, cryptographic suites um, to still be able to negotiate a connection. Well, it turned out that unfortunately, this negotiation was not adequately protected. So there was an attack possible where a man in the middle could essentially trick the, the 
the server into believing that the client was much less capable, in fact, virtually incapable of any useful security and therefore essentially, um, you know, really interfere with the result and strength of the connection. So one of the, th- one of the other things that was fixed in 3.0 was that that initial handshake that we'll again be talking about in a minute um, was strengthened to prevent any kind of modification um, and man, man in the middle attack. Essentially there's now a, a finish message that each end exchanges, which involves the hash of everything that they've said to each other, which is really very clever. Um, and that's, that's encrypted based on the, the encryption keys and protocols that they've established. And so what that does is each end is hashing everything it sends and hashing everything it receives and concatenating that. And then the idea is that, that each end is able to verify that hash, which is a hash over the entire exchange so far. So if anything was altered or modified in transit, the other end won't the, the the other end will have something different than the local end believes it sent, thus the hash won't match, and the endpoints completely shut down their connection and begin a renegotiation. So it's 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 much stronger now than it was before. Um and it's interesting because SSL 2.0 didn't have this notion of any sort of a finish. It just, um, in, in, in the, in the, it, well, it, it wasn't providing that kind of handshake protection. And also the overall connection didn't have a, okay, we're finished with this connection. And it turns out that there were some clever attacks that involved truncating the, a, a communication. Um, and in SSL 2.0, the that when TCP shut down, that is the the underlying protocol shut down, then the the protocol above, that is in this case SSL two O, it said, okay, I guess we're done, and it sort of wrapped itself up. Well, now there's a formal end of message communication added in at SSL three O, in order to say, okay, this is really the end. I've been told by the application layer that we're done now, so it's okay to shut down, which was missing from 2.0 that was added in 3.0. And finally, there's a feature that still hasn't been implemented. It's funny because I was <laughs> in reading some of the, of the um, commentary on the spec. The, there was some commentary that mentioned that, gee, you know, this feature hasn't, no one's used it yet but it's in there and it'll be really nice to have. And that is there is a provision that appeared in 3.0 and has survived in TLS that allows more than a single service. That is to say SSL2 um, and actually all practical implementations, because we're still not using it, as I said, assumes that everything is known about the remote endpoint, that is that the identity of the remote endpoint is is known. So that when, for example, the client connects to 
a server at a given IP, that server responds with its certificate. But this causes problems with virtual hosting because in a virtual hosting environment that we have discussed in the past, you can have many different websites located at the same IP. And it's the host header in the in the HTTP protocol that specifies which host which hosting website you want to connect to at that IP. If you don't have that, if you're unable to use that, then and which is the case now, um, you have you can't you have a problem with SSL certificates because you can only bind a single certificate to a single IP, and so there isn't a good way to do virtual hosting. What some people have done is used wildcard certificates where it'll be essentially asterisk dot and then a an underlying domain.com and then other domains are defined for, so for example you might have you know um webservice1.commondomain.com webservice2.commondomain.com and so the certificate would be star dot commondomain.com. Well, that provides you the ability to establish an SSL connection to any of the subsidiary different domains, but suddenly now you've lost a lot of protection because you're all you you don't know what domain you you have you've lost the authentication because you're authenticating to essentially to a parent domain, not to the subdomains, which is what you really want. The point is that with 3.0, although it's never been used, and also in TLS, there is the ability for the client to specify which certificate it would like to receive from the other end. So there is really nice native support for a virtual hosting environment. And, and the reason I was chuckling was that, well, none of the certificate people um, are are anxious to offer something like that. They would much rather, you know, sort of force as a, a certificate per um, IP and sort of leave things as they are. They're just it, it's interesting to me that this facility exists yet no one has implemented it. Um, so, so all of these things that were wrong with two O have been fixed in three O. Three, uh, SSL 3.0 was then, as I said, sort of taken over by the IETF, um, and that was in a, um, in terms of timeline. We got SSL version 2.0 in in February of '95, um, 3.0 in '96, and then the uh, IETF. Um, it was in '99 that the IETF. Uh, uh, took it over and um, uh, and and began to sort of take it under their wing and 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 create a more formal um, uh, specification. So I read or reread the specification this morning on your Kindle. Uh, uh, no, remember I don't <laughs> oh, have that's my right. big, I don't on have the tablet. big screen Kindle yet. Yeah. So I, I printed it out and you know old school. It's it's 104 pages. Ugh. And yeah, of really dense stuff. I mean, it's 
it's not it's the it's the exact opposite of light reading but i have to say it is and 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 at 104 pages that makes it one of the largest rfcs i think i have ever encountered um but it is just it's a pleasure to read it is beautifully put together specification i mean and and in in the beginning it talks about how this is you know we've produced this document for people who actually have to implement a working TLS version 1.2. Um, everything is here that you should need. And it's just, it's laid out in, in just in a, in a spectacular format. So TLS further improved on version 3.0 security. They, they continued to tweak things. More than anything, there was more, it's sort of a more rigorous specification. Um, there's 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 a formal approach used in RFCs where in the interest of 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 improving interoperability there's this notion of of using the terms may should shall shall not will not and, and I mean they've got you know real exact um meaning in terms in, in sort of w- 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 within the RFC specification uh, protocol itself. And so, you know, as, as you're reading RFCs, it'll say, you know, such and such and such, such may provide this or should provide this or must not. And, and so, and, they'll, and often these are in capital letters because, I mean, they, they really intend for readers of the RFC to pay attention to, you know, that sort of thing. Well, there always was some ambiguity that caused, caused implementation problems in previous versions of SSL so that so that people tended to copy each other's implementations rather than doing it from scratch themselves because you know they may not interoperate if they because the specification really wasn't rigorous enough it didn't really clearly specify exactly how everything should work sort of in those edge cases in the boundary cases where it's like where a programmer goes you know who reads a spec goes well wait a minute you sort of said greater than or equal to here, but over here you said greater than. So, you know, which, what which exactly is it? do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is it? I mean, you know, programmers and, of course, and computers who, who at that point are reflecting what the computer is <laughs> right. thinking. You, you can't right. have it be either way. It's right. got to be one or the other. And that's, you know, typically where code falls down. So TLS you know, has really worked to make that. A lot, a, a lot more strong. It it discarded um, in the later versions the the use of this hybrid MD5 and SHA1 approach, so that it's you know it's just not even in there anymore. Um, there are alert messages where either end can send each other warnings when like something doesn't look right. Um, there are many more alerts in TLS, and whereas before there were like should verbs tied to those, now they are must verbs. Mm. So it's like you know you're more sure that if there's a problem, the other point, the other endpoint, it will the other implementation will be notifying you for sure um, that that's going to happen. Um, also, the the pseudo random sequence generator 
um, both uh, inherent in crypto. You know, we talk about cryptographically strong pseudo-random number generators. Crypto needs a lot of random numbers. Um, it, um, it, they, they are they are used the so, so-called nonces, n-o-n-c-e. A it, it is a is used once and often encrypted using public key technology in order to provide a secret even over a channel that may have eavesdroppers li- listening in that can be received by the other end decrypted using some pre um agreed upon cipher um and and so the other end is able to get that information so um again TLS has a has a more robust and stronger uh pseudo random number generator based on the HMAC and in fact one of the reasons I had been, you know, we, we talked about HMAC some time ago, and I declared it as the final thing we needed in order to talk about SSL or, or TLS, is that it's TLS that uses the HMAC, that is the, the keyed uh, message authentication code. And remember that the way that works real briefly is that you take something that you that you want to hash, you append a particular hex pattern, I think it was 5C, um, a block of 5Cs, and then you 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 hash that. Um, um, oh, and I'm sorry, you, all, you, you append your key and then the 5Cs and then the content, which you hash, and then you take the result of that and you, you, you use the key, a different hex pattern, and the result of the first hash, which you hash, and that's the result. So that this is the so-called HMAC, and it is so strong, and people are so happy with it that, that they made that the basis for the hashing in TLS, and even the source of pseudo-random data. That is, you start with a seed and a key, and you 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 run HMAC on it in order to generate some material, and then you HMAC that along with the same seed to generate a next chunk of material and you HMAC that with the seed as many times as you need to um, as your source of pseudo-random data. And the, 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 this keyed MAC, this HMAC is, is good enough that what it's producing through just, just successive iterations of itself um, is is you know past all muster for, among the the uh, cryptographic security guys. So, um, okay, so that sort of gives us an overview outline of the history of the evolution of SSL to TLS, where we are now. So let's talk about how these guys connect. Um, there is a there's a a series of protocols which are um, just packets in a in a in an agreed upon format that's sent back and forth. So when the client connects to the browser, the first thing that happens is a TCP protocol connection is established. Then, if this is going to be an HTTPS connection, for example, a, a, a secure connection, the first thing that happens, oh, well, the way that the way the server expects that is the port that you connect to. As we know, web servers that are not 
going to be using a secure connection will connect by default to port 80. If you are going to use a secure connection by agreement, that you connect to port 443. So any incoming TCP connection to port 443 assumes that S, that that an SSL or I should say TLS connection is going to be made. So the first data that the server receiving this connection expects from the client is the so-called client hello message. Um, now, packets and messages are sort of separate things because a, a, a the packet is the unit of transmission over the Internet, but a packet can contain, I would say, one or more, but actually even zero messages. There, There is a there's a provision sort of clever in in the current TLS to to deliberately an, allow null traffic to be sent in order to confuse anybody who might be trying to do a traffic analysis so it is even possible to send no application data just sort of to send some blob just just to sort of like mess with the people who may who may be trying to figure out what's going on I got a chuckle out of that, but um, so so the client sends its client hello message, which contains the highest TLS or SSL protocol version that it knows about. That is that it supports, and this is the way that this is the first step in this negotiating for the best connection, the most secure connection possible. Also in there is um, a 32-byte a um, random number. It's composed of the Unix time at the, in, at the client end. U- Unix time is just a 32-bit value, which is the number of seconds since January 1st, 1970. Um, so it takes those, it takes those 32 bits or four bytes and it, it appends that to 28 bytes that it has locally generated randomly that produces a 32 byte, um, random number, which, which it includes with the highest protocol level that it understands. It also sends a session ID and makes up a session ID. Um, And what's interesting is that there's always been this notion of caching credentials at each end. We've talked often about how expensive public key crypto is. And for example, in the case of a very busy server, which is inherently using a lot of of secure connections, a lot of TLS connections, there's some tremendous overhead associated with the public key aspect of this negotiation. So there is the notion in both in the older SSL and now surviving in TLS, the notion of the endpoints being able to cache the result of that expensive public key work. And so what will happen is if the client is connecting to 
the same endpoint that is at the same IP, same web server, you know, URL um, um, that that it had connected to before. So that is that is to say, if it still has credentials cached from a previous connection, which may have just been seconds or fractions of a second before, it will offer the session ID from that cached credential to the server. It doesn't, there's no guarantee the server is going to accept it, but it'll make the offer suggesting that, hey, you know, I still remember you from just a second ago, and maybe we could dispense with some of this if we both agree to do that. So, so that's in there. Initially, in this same client hello packet is a list of all the cipher suites that it knows about, you know, things like triple DES, um, AES, um, you know, ver- various types of, of cryptographic packages, and also the compression messages or methods that it knows about. Um, there isn't much work that's been done on compression. Um, and, and I've, I've saw, I've, I've seen that, um, sort of opinions vary about, you know, whether any of it's being done or not. You either have, um, no compression or apparently there is the ability to use the, the standard Unix style deflate compression. That's of course always done before you encrypt. Cause as we know, you cannot, by definition, you cannot compress anything that's been properly encrypted because it just looks it's like random. randomness yeah. and randomness has no compressibility. Um, and then optionally there is the ability for extensions to be added. One of the nicest things about SL, SSL and TLS is that they've always provided by, by careful design extensibility so that we don't have to break any of this in order to move forward. That is, we're able to retire ciphers that, for example, if, if a cipher were suddenly discovered to have a problem, well, either end could remove it. And it could no longer, it could never again be used by by that end or by anybody that it was going to have to have a conversation with. Similarly, all of this is sort of has a list based art list l i s t based architecture where new ciphers coming on stream can be added because this is an IETF standard. Um, the I A N A is the is the sort of the the formal enumerator of these things because they end up just sending like a list of numbers. Um, so you need to know what, what ciphers those numbers represent and which hashes and so forth. So, so that's the, the IANA establishes all of those things for, for TLS moving forward. So this, so this packet, this client hello packet goes to the server t- saying, this is, this is, the, the specification, the, the highest level specification I'm aware of. Oh, and by definition, all previous specs are, are known to, to state-of-the-art TLS client and server endpoints. But it's felt now that enough time has gone by since SSL version 2, which, remember, came on in, 95, in February of 95, so what, 14 years that that most endpoints will not go will not downgrade themselves to SSL version 2.0. Some can be configured, but by default 
they'll they'll go back to 3.0 but no further back even if they may know how to they'll just it's like eh no this you know we don't want to use md5 for example under any circumstances so so there's a limit to how far back they will go um so this packet says this is the version i know of here's some randomness 28 bytes of pure crypto random sort of with this extra four bytes of Unix time tacked on the front just to give it a little extra, you know, non-reproducibility from one second to the next. The the session ID, either one I'm making up um, just out of the blue or that may represent cached credentials that we have uh, that we may share. And then lists of all the different cipher suites, hashes, um, and compression methods that 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 the the client side knows about plus any optional extensions which the the the, the specification formally allows so the res, the server gets that and 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 says okay now i know a lot about the client who is attempting to connect to me um it looks at the the protocol level that the client is offering and chooses the um and and looks at its own best protocol level, choosing um, the the highest level that they both can agree on. Um, it looks at the um, uh, the uh, list of of um, cipher suites and compression methods, and similarly chooses pick picks one 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 from the cipher suite, one from compression. That that it knows and is that is the most advanced, most secure, best that the client knows. It does the same generation of a random number, a, a producing a, a, a 32 byte random number, and it looks at the session ID and checks its own cache to see whether it is in agreement with the client that hey, you know, it, the client is saying it's got this in its cache. The server can either return a null session ID saying no resumption is agreed to, and by the way, I'm not doing any caching at this end for whatever reason. It can return a new session ID, which is its way of saying, sorry, I don't have that in my cache, so this is the session ID we're going to use instead. Or it can return to the client the same session ID that the client sent, which is the server's formal acknowledgement that they're going to have an abbreviated handshake because it still knows and is in agreement with the client about the stuff they had before. So so essentially the server hello message which returns has a lo- has all of this decision made. The final protocol that they're going to use that's been agreed upon um its own 32 byte random number uh, the session ID that they're going to be using, which may be what the client sent if they're going to if they both have the prior credential still in the cache, and the chosen cipher suite and compression method chosen from among those that the client offered that the server end is able to agree upon. It also, often in the same packet, sends its certificate message, even though it's a, technically in the protocol it's a separate message. As I said, mess- you could have multiple messages in a packet. So in what may be in the same packet, though doesn't have to be, 
will be its certificate message, which is essentially its certificate. It's offering its um, its certificate, the which normally contains the whole hierarchy of of signatures back to the certificate authority, um, and of course the the certificate has bound into it its public key. So that's its way of providing the first stage of authentication, saying here's here's the certificate that that you know that I the server end have. Um, it also, um, uh, well, and so 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 that information goes back to the um, back to the client end, and the server says, "Hello is done." That is my job with the hello phase is finished. Um, the client then receives the the um, both the server hello from the server and the um, the ser- the server certificate and the server hello done messages and um, and says okay um, it's um, you know we're in agreement here about all this. This also tells it uh, whether it's going to be using the same session ID or not. Um, if the session ID comes back that it offered, meaning that the server has retained the prior credentials, then at that point, they, they need to do no more negotiation. The client is able to, to send what's called a, a change cipher spec message, which essentially says, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to send you that is not under the cipher that we've the, the the cipher data that we've agreed to everything else from me henceforth will be and the server upon receiving it echoes the same thing back it sends its its uh the um the uh, change cipher spec message back to the client saying okay you know now we go un- under encryption at that point they then exchange finished messages which since those follow the the um the change cipher spec messages are encrypted using everything that they've agreed to so far and that's their final way of saying of, of proving to each other that that they that that all for example that these caches are valid that all the encrypted data is present um, and that they're in agreement and able and ba- basically proving that they are they are both able to exchange encrypted authenticated um, messages by sending this finished message and thanks to the this is finally evolved design of TLS um, they're not they will not allow any application traffic to pass they won't begin doing any work on behalf of the layer above them that initiated all this until they've they've exchanged and verified these finished messages um and, and the finished messages also contain this this hash of everything that basically the hash of their entire dialogue everything sent and received in sequence hashed together um uh, in order to verify that that no packets were lost or inserted or changed, and so that protects the whole handshake from any kind of of um, you know m- m- malicious um, 
modification. Wow, you came to an end. <laughs> I thought that was all one long sentence. I heard a period. That is the most complicated thing ever, but it works. Well, it does. And I mean, it it re, it is complicated, but as you know, as you when you think about it, I can't see a way of eliminating any of that. No, you need it. Yeah. yeah. No, I can see that. Yes. Yeah, you absolutely do. You 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 want a you want a I mean, this is this is the most the most used cryptographic protocol on the internet. It's, you know, it's HTTPS. It's what we're all using when we're logging into web servers and, and we want to be protected. And so it's, you, you want a protocol which is going to be able to grow, which is going to be able to accommodate differing capabilities on the endpoints. Cause you know, Lord knows, you know, we got all kinds of crazy clients all over here that are trying to connect to internet. So we've got Kindles, we've got phones, we've got, you know, I, iPods, we've got PCs. I mean, you know, we've got refrigerators and, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, it's clear to me that as processing power increases um, and as the, the pervasive threat prevent, uh, you know, presented by mal- ma- malicious access or um, ma- malicious actions on the internet, um, become more of a problem that security and the, secu- the 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 robustness of these kinds of communications um, is going to be increasingly important. So, I mean, you can imagine a day where where the notion of sending email over an unencrypted connection is just kind of quaint. You know, it's like you know Scotty trying to talk to the mouse in uh, the, the early start. Hello, computer. The voyage home. Hello, computer. Use the um, keyboard. So, you know, the idea of not encrypting everything, which is, you know, where we still are today. We only normally jump to encryption when we need it and often fall back to standard plain text communication. And, you know, you, got, you really kind of wonder why. Yeah, I wish we could use it all the time. Yeah. Uh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? So I mean, we, so it's not really, that. So there's not so much overhead that you really wouldn't be discons- not want to use it all the time. No, I don't think so. I mean, the I mean, sure, there's some overhead we on four point seven seven megahertz eighty eighty eight right on a PC that was painful. Right, but but there's only a there's only a little bit of packet overhead to reach agreement. There's a little bit of work being done in order to. Um, establish this. Basically, what, what what you're doing is you are establishing a a you are secretly and with full authentication establishing a shared secret symmetric key. Once you have, for example, an AES shared secret symmetric key, which which you you absolutely know no eavesdropper can access, then you're able to use a state-of-the-art high-speed cipher like AES, which is, I mean, no overhead, no, I mean, fundamentally really low overhead and super strong security for all of your, for all of your payload traffic. And so once that final agreement is reached and the application that's been patiently waiting for all this to happen is allowed to finally send something, it's just encrypted using this this shared secret symmetric key, which is extremely high speed, and 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 you know, data goes across the wire, and nobody can figure out what you've done, no matter how much they want to. Very cool. 
Very cool. Well, maybe we could just someday we'll all use SSL all the time or TLS as the case may be. As I said, I, I think ultimately it'll, the idea of not having encrypted secure communications will just be regarded as, you know, oh, that's the yeah. way you did it then? How did you guys, <laughs> how did you survive? You said everything in the clear? What's yeah. wrong with you? Yeah. Very interesting stuff. I really appreciate uh, the, the effort and time you put into getting it all uh, in detail. Now, I know a lot of people are going to want to listen again. That's there's, there's good news on that front. You can. Just download the darn thing from uh, the iTunes store or the Zune store. You can go to Steve's site and get it uh, in 16 or 32 kilobit, or I'm sorry, 16 or 64 kilobit versions at grc.com slash security now. But you'll also find a very useful tool for shows, particularly shows like this, uh, the transcription. You can read along as Steve talks, and I find that really, really helpful. Those are also at grc.com, along with all of Steve's show notes. You can also find more information at our wiki, which is... And in fact, we're always looking for people to help out with the wiki. Uh, you don't have to have even an account to edit it. So uh, wiki.twit.tv, and take a look at uh, the show notes page there. And if there's something you have to add, links or so forth, we sure appreciate that, too. That makes it uh, more valuable. Also, Google searchable, which makes it easier for people to find this great information. Steve, thank you so much. Absolutely a pleasure, Leo. And uh, we'll do a Q&A next week and uh, who knows what the week after. Get your questions in. Security now. Uh, uh, feedback is at grc.com slash feedback. So it's easy to do. Yep. Easy and to I do. love getting feedback. It's just great to hear from our listeners. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.